Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How y'all doing? Good, good. I'm Sean, if you don't know me. Uh, I have technically gone here for a very long time, but been out of uh, pocket for a bit. Uh, Brett asked me to come in uh, to help out because uh, he thought he was going to have a baby, but there's no baby yet. So Brett joined me. So thank you for being my Garfunkel. Uh, so... All right, why don't you all stand? We're going to do some worship this morning. There's something that unites us together this morning. Lord, we come together today as your body, as people who love you and, and are grateful for what you did for us. It unites us. The sacrifice on the cross, the resurrection, the new life in you. We give you glory in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. He does, and he transforms, he redeems, he makes things new, and we are, we're going to do something this morning that is, uh, is something that's meant to unite us together. So the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, he wrote this, if, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us or restored us back to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, offering forgiveness. And he has committed to us, those who know Christ, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And then in verse 21, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Forgiveness was needed, a sacrifice was needed to bring us back, to reconcile us, and Jesus paid it. And today we're going to remember together that sacrifice. It's something that unites us as a body together. It's why we're here. And so before Jesus died, he was with his closest followers. And he, he took some bread and he took a cup to illustrate what he was about to do. Uh, there was bread that was going to be broken at that meal. Uh, there was wine that was going to be poured. And that was, it was an illustration he used for what he was about to do. His body was about to be broken on a cross. His blood was about to be poured out. Why? Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why we just, we're gonna say it this morning, we implore you, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know his sacrifice, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Receive the offer that he gives even this morning. So today we're gonna to remember what Jesus did at that meal. And I'm gonna dismiss you in a second. I just wanna say this, if you know Jesus, this is for you. Uh, get up, get the elements, they're prepackaged. Um, as you know, I'll just say it right now, those packages aren't the greatest. So when you get back to your seat, start opening them right away. <laughs> I had it last time. I was, I was a little behind, but um, so I'm going to tell you that. But start opening uh, right away, and as you go back to your seat, to sit down and reflect. And if you don't know Christ, I'm going to say it again. We implore you. Even today, you can, you can uh, reach out to God and ask for that forgiveness that comes in Christ. Um, and if not, just sit this one out as far as communion goes. And... We know we've got families here today uh, and kids in here today, and we want to say, parents, just make the best 
decision for them. Uh, we, we want them to be included in this as, as they're ready, as they understand what the gospel is and have received it. So, all right. So as you're ready, go ahead. There's some tables out here. Go ahead and stand up and get the elements. Go back to your seat and reflect. And then when we're all back together, we'll take the elements together. God, we, we stopped just this morning to to live out what you have asked us to do, what you asked your followers to do, and what followers have been doing throughout the generations, which is to acknowledge, again, what you did on the cross. This is for us to remember, for us to confirm it, to declare it in our hearts again. And we just say it, God, we, without the cross, we are nothing. You bring hope, you bring life, you bring forgiveness through what you did. And we're just so grateful as your, as your church together that we share this in common with each other that, that you gave yourself for us and that we chose to believe and to follow you no matter what. So we remember today your sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians, it says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's remember him as we take it. Yeah, God, we think about that. Think about your body. Our, our forgiveness did not come without such a great cost and a, a sacrifice and what you went through for us, unimaginable. Um, and so we, we, don't, we don't dismiss it, God. We embrace that as you want us to, to remember it. Scriptures say, too, in the same way after he, uh, he did this, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's remember his blood that was for us. We know the blood, the blood flowed that day when you were on the cross. That it was, it was for us. It was for our sin that, that you had no sin, but you took it on for us so that we might be reconciled to God. What a gift you've given us in, in being reconciled to God and not, and our sins not counting against us. Just, it's just mercy. It's just pure mercy that you did this for us, and we're just so grateful that we have life in you because of that. And so we sing and worship as they did in that time, too. In your name, amen. Thank you, Father God, for the restoration that you bring to us, Lord, for who we are in you and who we can't be apart from you, Father God. We praise you thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
You guys can have a seat. It's been great worship. I want to give a special shout out to the kids. Thank you for being with us, kids. It is time for you to go to Kids Life. Stand up. Sorry, if you, sorry kids, if you sat down. Stand up. <laughs> Look at our exit. You'll see some friendly faces waving at you. It is time to go to Kids Life. We'll see you later. Well, good morning. Um, unscripted? I'll just say, man, I needed to see uh, those words this morning. There's nothing better than, than Jesus. Um, it's his work. It's his work. We've been in the book of um, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We called this series Urgently Waiting. We're, we're now in, like, the last third. There's nine weeks of this, and we're in... Uh, Today marks our seventh week together. We're nearing the end, and today's the beginning of the end. We're going to be towards the end of chapter four, and if you have a Bible and want to turn there, we're going to get there in just a minute. Um, but, but the book of 1 Thessalonians, like most of the, the New Testament books, were, were letters written, most of these letters were letters written by the Apostle Paul, um, is a man called by God to, to take the good news about Jesus that we just sang about, to take that to the Gentile, to take it out to like the rest of the, the, the world from where it began in the city of Jerusalem. It was his appointed mission. And, um, and he visited the, the church in Thessalonica, which is a, a coastal city. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was an important city um, there uh, in, in what's northern Greece. And, and, and Paul spent just a short period of time there. He was run out of town, and then he went down to some of those southern cities that you see there. Athens and Corinth, and it's believed that while he was in Corinth, one of his traveling companions, Timothy, came, he, he had sent Timothy back up to those other places, Philippi, Thessalonica, maybe some others, and now Timothy had come back to where they were in Corinth to give a report. And, and, and so Paul then writes this letter uh, to the Thessalonians, there's two that we have in our New Testament, so First and Second Thessalonians, we've been looking at First Thessalonians, he writes this first letter to the church at Thessalonica, and it is... It's, it's a letter that's, that's, like, unique amongst all of Paul's letters. It's very encouraging. It's full of good news. He gets, what, what had happened was that it, apparently Timothy had come back to rejoin Paul, and he'd given such a good report about the church in Thessalonica that they'd, they had consistently loved one another, and he encouraged them to do that even more, that they had, they had pursued the work of God. Um, and, but it's also clear that they had some questions that, that, Timothy hadn't satisfactorily answered during his visit. And so, um, and so this letter starts to address those questions. Um, and, um, and those questions particularly have to do with this sort of four-category, four-chapter story that, that we talk about here from time to time, and it's been important in this series, that the work of God is best seen through just sort of four episodes or stanzas, and, and those episodes or stanzas can be a moment or they can be like, you know, centuries, right? But, but, he, but the story of God is the story of creation, that God created the world the way it ought to be. But then sin entered, right? So sin comes in, and, and then that leaves us with the world that just is. It's the world the way that we experience it with the brokenness that we were just, just kind of singing about and that, that some of us are feeling poignantly or when we look at our world and we see, we see war and we say, it shouldn't be like this. You're right. It wasn't meant to be that way. It's, it's sin that brings about those things and the hurt and the disease, just the pain, the relational pain. That's just the world the way that we live it because of sin. 
But the good news is that there's the bottom half of this story, right? Bottom on the page, it's the, it's the, it's the greatest news, right? But it's, it's the story of what can be, the story of redemption, that God's been at work to undo what sin has broken. Like we just sang it, right? He makes beautiful gardens out of graves. That's redemption. And then, and then ultimately, all of it's going to be recreated. There's many different ways we can talk about that last box down there at the, the bottom right. But ultimately, it's going to be recreated. It's the world that will be. God's going to set it right. And, and when we talk about that last category, I'm going to use a, a big word here. Okay? It's, a, it's just a theological term you may be familiar with. I don't know. But, but when we talk about that last category, we're talking about what theologians call eschatology. Eschatology is the, it's the specific term that's used to talk about like what will be or sort of like the end of things, like what comes after what we presently experience. It's a big bucket word that collects a lot of things in our scripture. The scripture does speak about what will be and the questions that the church in Thessalonica had for, for, uh, for, for, for Paul specifically deal with some questions about what happens like next. What happens after this reality? They were living with... with um, a, a fair amount of persecution. They were living with trouble in their world, and, and they knew that, that, that there was a promise that that trouble wouldn't last forever, but, but there were still some unanswered questions, and so they apparently asked him those questions, and he's going to provide some answers. And in those answers, we're going to see a little, a little bit of, of what, what Paul's perspective on this was and how that came from God himself. But eschatology deals with death, our mortality, it just does. What happens to us when we die? It deals with, uh, with ultimately our destiny. Does, does, do I live beyond the here and now? And if so, what's that like? It deals with judgment. It deals with judgment. What responsibility do I carry into the next life? And these are all questions that that the ancient world had answers for, but those answers were all over the place. Most pagan people didn't believe in an afterlife. Most of the Jews, the, the, the Jew, the, and, and these early Christians, many of them had come out of a Jewish background. Most of the Jews believed in like a resurrection sort of at the end of all things. But, but there was a lot of, there was not a lot said about what happens once someone dies between then and the resurrection. And so... Paul has, in this passage that we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians 4, he has um, some answers about those things, so some questions that they were asking. Now, I say eschatology, and some of you, there's going to be a lot of different responses in the room. I get that, okay? Like, I just say it, and I can anticipate, I can anticipate a handful, um, <laughs> but, um, but there may be others, okay? Some of you hear that, and you're just sort of like, you, you, you would say, like, hoo, 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 good, like, the good stuff's coming, right? Like, this is interesting. I can't wait to talk about this. I want to. That's a potential response. Some of you are going to be kind of indifferent, right? Like, oh yeah, whatever. Okay, whatever. I don't know. Whatever. And some of you might have even like hostile indifference. Like, yeah, whatever. Don't talk about it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to deal with it. I, that's sort of a, a response. Some are just curious. Like, oh yeah, I've heard about this. I don't. I, there may be some that, like, I don't know anything. I don't, I don't, I'm completely lost. I don't know what you're talking about. That's fine. We're going to talk through what the scriptures say about it today, okay? Um, some may just have denial, right? Like, that's not, that's not real. It's not real, okay? All that stuff is just not real. 
you know, the, what, the, what the scriptures may say on it, um, I, I don't believe it. I, I, don't, I don't know where you are on this, this morning. I'm assuming there's people in the room that come from each of those five perspectives. Forgive me, I can't speak to each one of those five individually. You may be off my, my chart of five. You may have, like, you know, that in a sixth. I don't know, okay? But what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. We're going to look at what Paul said about this and try to make sure we understand it in the wholeness of, of what the rest of at least the New Testament tells us, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it says this, okay? Paul starts with it. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope, okay? Paul tells us right off the bat why he's, he's writing this to them, right? He says, we don't want you to go on without hope, okay? And, 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 and specifically about those who've fallen asleep, that's just sort of like a, a, a euphemism for those who are dead, okay? Those who are dead. So, so those who have fallen asleep, it's not, and, and this is going to get, oh, by the way, this is, um, this is part one of a two-part talk on this because this passage goes, this, these ideas go into chapter five. So if you're here this week, you have to come back next week. It's a rule. Um, and anybody who you know isn't here, make sure that they watch this before next week. It's going to, trust me, it's going to make much more sense altogether. Um, but the, 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 this, he uses this word asleep, meaning like they're, they, these folks are dead, okay? And, and, and he's answering a question like, there's some confusion about what happens to those who have died, okay? What happens to those who have died? It's believed, and we have to sort of piece this together from other, from other sources, other things, but it's believed that there was concern that, if, that, that because Jesus was going to return, as Paul's going to write here in a minute, that, that if Jesus returns and someone had already died, that they would not benefit from his return, okay? So there's a promise that, that comes to the, to the people, which is Jesus himself said, and we'll, we'll see this in a minute, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, just as you see me leave, I'm going to come back, okay? I'm going to come back. And there was apparently a fear on the part of some people that, that those who died were going to lose out on the benefit of Christ's return. And, and Paul says, look, I'm, I'm writing to you, okay, so that you're not uninformed, that you don't have wrong thinking about this, that you've got the right information about those who are asleep, that you don't grieve as those who have no hope, okay? Because, there's, again, this, this is, in some ways, it's like, we can take this as an abstraction, right? We can put it out there and sort of go like, yeah, there's, there's, there's some stuff that the Bible says about the future, about what happens to us after we die, about, about our ultimate destiny. There's stuff out there, okay? And I can study it in the Bible. I can read some books about it. I can go to Bible studies. I can look at it, and I can formulate a, a, a vision or an idea of what takes place in there. That's one way we deal with this stuff. The other way we deal with it is when we're standing next to a casket, right? And we've lost someone that we love, we care about. It's a different set of questions that we ask in a classroom versus a funeral home, or even in a congregation versus a graveside. When we've lost someone, and the meaning that that and Paul says here and in other places, we ought not to grieve as those who have no hope. Now, hope in the, in the scriptures is, is a special term. It does not mean, it doesn't mean like we think about, like, I hope, like a wish, like I, I hope that things go well. It's not that. This, this word for hope is a word that means expectation. 
We don't want you to, he says, we don't want you to grieve. We don't want you to go through life grieving as those who have no expectation that there's something beyond this life. We don't want you to live that way. We don't want you to live as if this life is all that you get, that this is all that there is. So he goes on in verse 14. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he says something, he says something about Easter, right? It's coming up. Let's start talking about it now. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, he says the hope, the hope, it doesn't begin in just some sort of idea out there that things are going to be all right. The hope that, that he's writing to, to followers of Christ, he's writing to a Christian church, and he says, the hope is this. Jesus has gone before you and done something that those who are already dead are going to participate in, namely, his resurrection. His resurrection. This is no small matter. This is no small matter. He, he hits this again in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? Now, we can't deny this. We can't deny the resurrection. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says, look, all this stuff is pointless and meaningless if there's no hope in the resurrection. This is the thing. This is the promise. This is what Jesus did before us. He died, and then he, in the flesh, in his body, came back to life. I don't care what, what the argument is on superpowers. That's the one you want, right? Forget about flying and invisibility or whatever. I don't care. You want this one where death is gone. It's the last enemy. And what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica is that those who have already died, they don't miss out on resurrection. I know that we see their body and it's lifeless, but there's a promise, a future hope, which again is not just a wish. It's, an, it's a faith-infused expectation that that dead body is not the end of that person's story. We can't grieve that way. That there's new life and a life of resurrection. If we take this seriously, and, and what Paul's arguing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is, if we don't take this seriously, you might as well throw out the whole thing with Jesus. If we take this seriously, we're going to share in that same bodily resurrection that Jesus went before us, that he possessed. It's not just a disembodied spiritual nirvana. It is a very real resurrection that we share in with him. Now, how does the biology of it? I don't know. I don't know. What I know is that this is the, the promise. This is the promise. So Jesus' resur resurrection, it, it begins our hope. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 11. 
he says, this is in the midst of um, the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. His friend Lazarus had died, and he had these two sisters, right? And he's having this dialogue with one of the sisters, and he he had said to her, like, you know you're going to see your brother again. And she says, yeah, I know I'll see him, like, in the end, like, is the implication. Like, someday, at the end of all things, you're going to bring all this, or or God's going to bring all this back. And Jesus says, well, yeah, but you understand he says in, verse, in, in chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. So whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And to her credit, she says, I believe. The, 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 our future destiny is tied to who Jesus is and what he did. The hope, the hope of resurrection, the hope that, that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica about here is it's not just, that, 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 again, that we're going to get to a place that, that's going to be really nice someday. That there's, again, some spiritual state out there that we're going to find and appreciate. It's the very claim that through Jesus, resurrection is realized. That we share in it. I, I'm, that blows my mind. I, I could conceive of, like, you know, disembodied spirits in the universe or whatever. But I, it takes the message of Jesus and the work of Jesus for me to really understand, to really come to terms with, to, to really engage with the idea that, that this life will go on through Jesus. And that's the hope. That's the hope of our faith. Keep reading with me in First Thessalonians 4. So he says this. For, he says, for this we declare to you by a word of the Lord. I'm going to pause there for just a second. Um, a lot of debate about word of the Lord. Is this something that Jesus said directly? Probably not because there seems to be some things here that are said that are beyond that. In all likelihood, Paul is probably saying as an apostle, as no, no, I'm gesturing to me. He would be gesturing to himself. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has, has information from directly from God, I'm telling you something now that pulls the curtain back a little further for you, okay? And he says this, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So work it backwards now from the end of this verse. Those who are dead, those who have fallen asleep, they will be with the Lord first, okay? Like, well, Esther doesn't say that. Will not proceed. Like, that, that there will, there, those who are dead will be with the Lord, let's say, instantaneously with all those who are alive. So the promise of Jesus' return, okay, the promise of Jesus' return comes with this idea that, that, that those who have died aren't missing out on anything, okay? That's the specific question that the church in Thessalonica seemed to ask. These people that we've lost recently, and by the way, he's pro- they're probably asking about specific people who had, who had been lost based on the persecution they were experiencing. So, Okay, so we go follow you, God, through Jesus, this, this good news of the gospel of Jesus and, 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 and his death for our, for our sins. And now that very belief is causing the persecution that's taking our lives. And by losing our lives, are we losing out on the benefit of following Jesus? That's a fair question, right? Like, I'm giving up my life for you. And by giving up my life, I'm losing the benefit. I'm losing the promise And Paul says, no, no, that's not the case. It's not the case. He says, I'm sure from the Lord, I'm sure from the Lord 
that if, even if we die, we're not losing out on this. Now, there's another important idea in here that gets lumped in together, and this is, you see what observes it says, until the coming of the Lord, until the coming of the Lord. We don't do this a whole lot, but there's a, there's a specific Greek term there. Um, that in the original language of the New Testament, there's a specific, specific Greek term that, that does a better job when we fully understand it of describing this than just coming or coming of the Lord. It, it, and the word is parousia, okay, or parousia. Um, parousia, parousia, and, and th- this word, it means presence or arrival, okay? Now, that all, that's all well and nice, okay? But it actually carried kind of a cultural idea um, that was really important. And the idea was sort of like, like, like the, the parousia, the coming of like an authority. So imagine you're, you're living, we'll just say today, okay? You're living today, um, which isn't, shouldn't be too hard for you to imagine. Um, so, so, so today, you find out um, that like, uh, or we could say even this morning, okay? We could say even this morning that like the mayor of Hilliard is going to come to our service, Okay? He was going to parousia with us. He would be present with us. Okay? Like, he would come and join us. Now, it carries a specific meaning when it's someone who has some authority. Okay? Because the, the, the mayor of Hilliard has, I assume, some authority. Okay? I don't want to belittle them in any way. Um, but but the, mayor, the mayor of Hilliard has some authority. But what if this was like, what if it was like the governor? Or maybe it's like, you see where I'm going, the president, or who, like whoever, an authority figure who's still, they have authority even when they're not present, but their parousia, their presence, carries with it special meaning. We would probably behave a little differently if the governor of Ohio or the president of the United States was here in our midst we would probably have done some things to kind of like, you know, I don't know, acknowledge that. In the first century context, the word was most often used about where Caesar would go. He would parousia. He would, he would be present in a place, and with him would come his authority. Okay? It's a little, it's, right? Like, you've probably had a job at some point where like, People behave differently when the boss wasn't around. Remember, like, undercover boss, is that still a thing? One of my, one of my early jobs, I worked in a sporting goods store, like a, a big, like, like a Dick's Sporting Goods. And um, <laughs> someone else said that this, they had this experience in retail, too, which is, I found fascinating. I thought it was unique to mine. But, but, like, when it was closing time, if you finish your duties at the end of the night, but it wasn't time for them to put the big gate up and send you out, they, w- they would literally come over, they had cameras on us and everything, they would literally come over the, the uh, uh, intercom and say, are you standing there or are you touching stuff? They would say those words. And so at that point in time, I worked in the shoe department of that big store. We would literally like stand and have a hand on a shoe, right? But when Joe, the manager, walked by, it wasn't just this disembodied voice reminding us to touch stuff. It was actually like, oh, we've got to tuck some shoelaces in. We've got to make sure price tags are right. Like, we got active, okay? Now, in the context of this, this is sort of like the manager's coming. The CEO of the business, the company, is there in your presence, your parousia. His, he's coming. You follow me? I've beat this to death, right? Okay. 
but it's an important word. When we talk about, okay, ready? When we talk about biblically, the coming of the Lord, Jesus' return, it's that word, parousia, okay? Parousia, that's the word that shows up all the time. That's the bigger context of it. So, keep reading with me, verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the death and dead in Christ will rise first. We're starting to get some of the language that we probably recognize with, with passages like this, if we've if we've been in the scriptures or if we've read the books that, you know, were written about these kinds of things, the popular books like Left Behind or others. So, so it tells us that the Lord is going to descend from heaven. Now, this is an important idea, and I'm going to have to pick up my pace, right? Okay, Acts chapter 1. Here's where the theology of this comes in, the biblical theology of this. This is um, Acts chapter 1, so this is right after um, the, the resurrection within a matter of, we'll, we'll say, weeks of the resurrection. Uh, the the disciples of Jesus experienced this moment. It says in verse 9 in Acts chapter 1, as they were looking on, he, being Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, which makes sense, right? As he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes. Let's just shorthand that as angels. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The idea, what, what sounds sort of weird, may, may sound weird to us about Jesus descending, it's one of the very, very first theological ideas of the church, okay? It's one of the very first things, very first stories that the church would have told after Jesus had departed. He said he's coming, or he didn't say, we were told he's coming back. We were told he's coming back. Imagine standing there in that moment and experiencing that and hearing those words. Just as you saw him leave, he's going to come back in the same way. He's going to come back. The return of Jesus. Remember our, 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 our response at the beginning? Confusion, denial, whatever. The return of Jesus cannot be denied if we're to take the Bible seriously. Jesus is coming back. I realize that these words, we're nearing the the 2,000th anniversary of those words. I get it. The Apostle Peter writes, but yeah, like a 1,000 years is like a day to God. Like time is your issue that you're hung up on, not God's. He's not hung up on it. Jesus is going to return in the same way that he left. That, that idea, that idea animated the church. It drove them. Jesus will return. His parousia, his coming is gonna be soon. It's going to happen. So see what it says. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The cry of command, voice of an archangel, sound of the trumpet we see in other places. Jesus himself used some of this language in Matthew 24 when he said, then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That's him, the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man. That's him. Coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. That, that this event, the coming of Jesus, and, and notice the contrast. The book of Matthew begins with, with an impoverished family and the king of the world being born in, 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 this, in this feeding trough is where he laid. That was his first coming. But notice what he says about himself at the end here of Matthew, where he says, it was easy to miss it the first time through if you weren't local. It was easy to miss that God had come to earth the first time through. But the second time, 
There's gonna be no question or doubt about his authority. There's gonna be no missing it or mistaking it. There's gonna be no ambiguity about what's taking place here. He's going to return with a show of force, a show of power. Keep reading verse 17 in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then Paul says, so the dead will rise in verse 17. Then who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the, the dead have met Jesus, and now he says the living come next. And notice, the, the, like, don't ignore the pronouns there, right? What does Paul say, that, that second word in verse 17, then we who are alive. Look, at Paul believed that this was imminent for him. He believed that, that, that this thing, now, this is Paul, who we have already established had a special word from the Lord. But he believed that at any moment, at any moment, this could take place. If you've been around the church, church or church stuff for a while, the phrase there, caught up, is actually, I'm, there is a Greek term that I'm not going to butcher, but it's where, it's, when it was translated into Latin, that became the word rapture. We are familiar with that word? Okay. There's all kinds of debate, as, and, and it's, we're, like, it's fine debate, but there's all kinds of debate about rapture and when and what, and that's just where it comes from. Okay? That those who are alive will be caught up, will, will and, and, and again, you could say it's, we can say it's literal or we can say it's a, a figurative enrapturing. I, it doesn't matter at this point. That's not what this is about. This is about these, the reality of Christ's return and what it means. And there's some non-negotiables in it. There's some non-negotiables in it. The first is this. And this, is, this is the question they asked, right? The dead will be raised, right? The dead will be raised. Absolutely. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 again later on down the path. We looked at some verses in 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. This is later in that same section. It says this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Does that language sound familiar? He's talking about the same event. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Ready? This is, this is the truth. This is the truth. The dead will be raised. It's a promise. We've not lost anyone who trusts in Christ. Those who trust in Christ are not lost. They will be raised in this moment. The second non-negotiable is this. Living Christians, those who follow Christ, will be transformed. Look at what continues to go on in 1 Corinthians 15. The trump will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. Look, again, I would love, I would love to have special insight to be able to tell you exactly how this works. I don't have that. I don't have that, and I would actually give you a word of caution to anyone who tries to sell you that they do have it because they're speaking outside of what the scriptures tell us. What the scriptures tell us is this. There's a moment coming. There's a moment coming where Christ will return. He will return. And some order of these events is going to take place in some period of time. Either some of it will be in a second, maybe some of it, I don't know, but it's happening. 
And those who are alive will experience it. They will pass from mortality into immortality. But those who are dead don't miss out. We don't lose our hope because of death. Our hope in the resurrection goes on. So the dead will be raised. Those living who've put their faith in Christ will be transformed. And then, but the third thing is this, and man, we better not miss this. Jesus will be present. Not like, not in a like not yet sense. Not in like, not like the governor is coming or the president is coming or the CEO is on his way. He will parousia in that moment. Look at what it said there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Together with him, the clouds will meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This is the benefit of it all. It's not escape. Look, look. Tribulation and trial and trouble and suffering, those are part of life. And and the removal of those things will be great. It's not the ultimate benefit of Christ's return. The peace that will be experienced when Christ's rule is established and there's no more war, that is a great benefit. But it's not the main thing. The comfort, the prosperity that comes from having our needs met, the hopeful passages of no more pain, those are great But what the scriptures tell us is the real promise is that we will be with Jesus. All of those other good things happen because he is there. And the question for us in this, is that enough? Is that enough for us? Is it enough for Jesus to be there? I don't know, remember the first place I read or the first person to ask it. But if you could have eternity with all of its benefits, but without Jesus, would you still want it? Or do we want Jesus? You see, the return of Jesus is the satisfaction of our desire and our longing to be with him, which is the essence of our faith. Do we want Christ? Or do we want something else? Do we want Christ or do we want do we want power in our world? Do we want Christ or do we want our our trouble and suffering to go away? Do we want Christ or do we want him to provide relational needs for us? The promise of the scriptures is that ultimately all of those other things that we desire will be fulfilled because we'll be with him. But the benefit is being with him. Paul said it to the church in Colossae this way. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Like if if your station is already that you stand with him, that you are already with him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's gone ahead of us. Skip verse two to verse three. For you have died. Like this is in a figure, the life you were leading before is gone. Your life now is hidden in Christ. It belongs to him. And then it says this, look at this hope in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, there's our word again, comes, appears, he's present, then you appear with him in glory. You're with him. 
That is the promise. That's the hope. I'm going to, I want to read, this is very short. I want to read this, it looks long, it's very short. <laughs> Daniel Migliori is, a, Migliori is a theologian who said this about our hope. He said, hope in the parousia, or the appearing of Christ, emphasizes, first of all, that Christian hope is hope in someone, not in things or ideas, however desirable and valuable they may be. Christians do not simply hope for life, joy, freedom, justice, and peace in the abstract. They do not hope simply for their individual survival or the survival of family members or their nation or the human race. Christian hope in the coming of Jesus Christ in whom all that is good has its basis and meaning and without whom all would be empty and worthless. Christian hope is hope in Christ, the coming Lord, and his reign. That's what we hope for. That's what we hope for, to be with him. last verse of the chapter says this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We're going to see that again next week in the next section. Encourage one another with these words. Now, I want to wrap up by just sharing a little bit of my story. I grew up in a place that really emphasized this topic. It was just my world, okay? Like, we talked about, <laughs> we talked about the coming of Jesus all the time, and people argued about when and signs and what country was invading which country and which leader was the antichrist and which all that stuff went on in my circles and if, if you didn't count it as a blessing i did and i'll tell you as a young person i was not encouraged by these words i had a deep fear of the future instilled in me on those on that list of responses, I'm going to be honest, mine isn't denial, but it is just like, please, can I just not think about it most of the time? And I think, it, I think it's rooted in the idea that I was constantly being told to be afraid of Christ's coming. Because if he shows up and you're not being a good little boy, you're going to miss it. I couldn't sleep at night unless I could fall asleep where I could see my parents and my family because I was afraid of this. Notice what Paul says here. The purpose of this is not to scare you. It's to encourage you, right? The resurrection of Jesus means that death is not the end. It's not the end. Jesus went before us into it, into death. And then he came out of it. He rose from the grave in the same way we will. Should we trust him? He controls our future. It's not in my hands to make it happen. It's his to take. Oh, that's encouraging. The weight that, that comes off of me with that reality known but the future isn't up to what I make of it. The future is in God's hands. We're going to do one more song, and Sean, Brett, want to come down? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. God, thanks. Um, I thank you first, Jesus, for 
for your willingness to come the first time and to lay aside all of the capacity which was still yours, but to lay it aside to live amongst us and to take on our sin and to sacrifice yourself so that, so that we could be with you. We can be made right. And God, forgive us for making it something that, um, that's just about a better life now. Forgive us for trying to capitalize on who you are to, to make more of ourselves in this day, in this time. And help us to trust, help our hope to be fixed on you, Jesus. Because we believe, we believe that this is not the end, that you will return. And we trust that even though we don't know all the whens and hows, we trust that it will. And we trust that you've got it. And we believe that you are the power and you are the authority to do it. And so we thank you. We thank you for promises already kept and fulfilled, but we also thank you for those that are coming and ask that you would increase our faith to trust you more and more in those as well. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Father God, that we are no longer slaves. We are no longer slaves to death. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to any of the shackles of this earth, that we are freed by you and the gift that you freely gave to us. Thank you, Father God. We worship you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So good to be together today and just worship with all of you, just my church family, and take communion. Just oh, genuinely just love to all be together. Thank you for all of you who joined us online. Just a couple of quick announcements. One, um, our sister church in Honduras um, sent us letters with our team that just came back. So if you sponsor a child, you can go out in the lobby and see if you have a letter um, from one of your kiddos out there. And then our team is going this summer. So if you would like to support them um, financially, you can go to mylcc.info and you could go to the um, mission page under Honduras and you can see ways that you could um, support them that way. And then finally, and I'm personally really excited about this, um, God is doing amazing things around here with the multicultural movement. And so when God works, it is great to join him in prayer. So on March 31st, that's a Thursday night at seven o'clock, we are gonna gather here together just to pray for what God might be doing there and just uh, for that movement. I think that's it. Have a great, great Sunday afternoon.